and welcome to Talking Talmud. I'm one of your hosts, Yardana Asband, here with my friend Chavruta Ann Gordon. Our daf today, Masachet Kedubot, daf Kaf Vav, page 26. Well, we're still talking about Kohanim, Yichas, how to reprove that. Um, but there's one little interesting bit that gives us some historical information about Kohanim and Levim at the top of the daf that I want to read today. Um, and uh, this has to do with uh, an issue with the Shivatzion as well. So we start with the Bryce that says Tanya. Rabbi Shuman ben Elazar Omer, Kishem Shetruma Chazakal Kuhuna, Kach Maser Rishon Chazakal Kuhuna, Vehacholik Bebetin Eno Chazaka. So this Bryce teaches that Rabbi Shuman ben Elazar says that just as Truma, right, if somebody is seen collecting Truma, it establishes that they are her Kohen. Also, getting Maser Rishon would establish that as well. Now, when we know about all the different things that we have to take from our produce, right? Truma goes to the Kohanim. Maser Rishon actually goes to Levian. Then there's something else that's called Trumat Maser, which is the Truma that a lady separates from Maser. But the things that we're talking about here is Truma, which is the regular gift for a coin, and Maser Rishon that goes to a lady. Um, but what Rabbi Shimon ben Elazar is saying is, is that if you see a coin, getting Maser Rishon, well, sorry, if you see a person getting Maser Rishon, that could also be proof that they are a Kohen. And then the Brisa concludes by saying that if somebody gets their truma in a court, uh, that's not a good, that's not a good proof. Now the Gemara goes on to ask, Maser Rishon to Levi here. What does that mean? Maser Rishon goes to Levi. How does that establish that somebody's a Kohen? Karevi Elezer ben Azariah. So this is according to the opinion of Rabbi Elezer ben Azariah. Ditanya, and here we get another brisa. Truma lekohen, maser rishon lelevi. Dibri Rabbi Akiva. So Rabbi Akiva says Truma goes to the kohen, maser rishon to the levi, which we know. Rabbi Elazar ben Azariah, maser rishon af lekohen. Rabbi Elazar ben Azariah says even a kohen can also collect maser rishon. Now the question is, emor da amar Rabbi Elazar ben Azariah af lekohen, lekohen below lelevi mi amar. So the question is, when Rabbi Elazar says in this brisa, right? Uh, to a priest as well, did he actually mean that it's to a priest and not to a lady? In other words, the question is, should it be given both, since it can both be given to a priest and to a lady? Again, you still can't use this as a proof that therefore someone who gets Master Rishon is, uh, you know, is a Kohen because maybe he's a lady. And so the Gemara goes on to say, in, right, yes, right? Batar de Kasminhu Ezra, right? So yes, the this eating of or this getting of Master Rishon can be used to establish somebody as a Kohen because this was a knas. This was a penalty of Ezra. And what is this penalty? Is that during the Shivatzion, when Ezra came up, the Levium basically didn't go back up to Eretz Yisrael from Babel. And so he basically said they do not deserve uh, the uh, the master reshown anymore, and that even though according to Del Rey's law, technically master reshown could be eaten by a coin or be eaten by a levy, after this takana of Ezra, it was only given to the Kohanim. Um, and so therefore, the, the Gemara says, right, the Dilma ikro v'yahavele. But maybe still, he actually still was a Levi, and they just happened to give him Maser Rishon. So it's interesting. What the Gemara is saying is it's like, okay, maybe you had this Takana of Ezra, but still Maser Rishon is something that Levium used to get. And therefore, once if somebody were to take or you saw them eating Maser Rishon, you can't be 100% sure 
that they were not actually uh, that they were not actually a lady. Amar so Rav Chisa says, "Hacha b'mayaskina." What are we talking about here? Kugon de muchzak lan ba'bua dehai de kohen hu. So Rav Chisa says, "What are we talking about here?" It's a case where a father, right, uh, basically, uh, you know, was uh, 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 was established to to be a kohen. But there's a son who it's his son. It's not sure. Maybe he was the product of that fa- that coin father with a divorced woman, right? Or with a chalitza, which we know a coin is not allowed to marry. And therefore that son is actually a halal. He's disqualified from the kahuna. And he actually is not entitled to truma at all. The chaluk maser bevet hagranot. And he but he couldn't eat Master Rishon. And so therefore he got Master Rishon. And that's actually uh, what this case, uh, what this case is. Um, and so then the Gemara goes on to say, Levi Delav Levihu, but it's in terms of the Levi status, right? All it tells you is that he's not a Levi because his father was a priest. My Eka what is there to say? Ben Grusho Ben Chalutzahu, then he must have been uh, the son of a divorced woman or the son of a chalutza. So in other words, what it would establish is, is that you were a Kohen of, uh, of, a, of, a non, of not a good Kohen uh, sort of relationship. And that's what, that's what the Maser Shani, or the, sorry, the Maser Rishon, that's what the eating of the Maser Rishon, uh, that's what it would have established. established. So we don't need to say this according to someone who says that Maser Rishon isn't allowed to non-priest, right? They wouldn't have been given it, uh, the, the Maser Rishon, if he was the son of a divorcee, because he actually has the status of not being Kohen. Love Habe Yahave Lei, right? It, it wouldn't have been brought to him. But even according to the one who says that Maser Rishon could be given to a non-priest, Right. And so therefore, this still wouldn't prove anything. This halacha basically only applies, right, to the fact that it would be permitted for one who the Maserishan was distributed to um, to provide to non priests. But if it's in the form of a, of a share, like on the threshing floor, right, you wouldn't give it to a non priest. So what we're basically saying here is, according to Rabbi Elezer Ben if somebody receives the Maser Rishon on the threshing floor, that proves that he would be a priest of, like, of, of good lineage. So what, what this whole thing is, so I, I thought this was interesting for two things. First of all, that, you know, we have this Takana of Ezra that maybe brings into play that maybe Maser Rishon uh, was given only to Kohanim. Uh, and then the second issue is, which is like, well, maybe we're talking about a case uh, like, in other words, could Kohanim of not good unions, basically a Kohen who becomes a Halal, right? A son, a, a, the son of a Kohen who becomes a Halal, are they entitled to Maser Rishon or not? Ultimately, they could eat Maser Rishon, but they're not allowed to eat Maser Rishon as it's given out on the threshing floor as Maser Rishon itself. So if it's given to them on the threshing floor, then that person has to obviously be a Kohen. That's what the Halach would be according to Rabbi Elazar ben Azariah. So two interesting things here. One about Ladiim, uh, and I think a different aspect about Kohanim that we didn't actually think about. I think we all knew that a halal doesn't get truma, 
but asking this question about could halal get Masa Rishon is also a very interesting halakhic question. So I want to make the following observation, and you'll tell me, Yardin, if you agree with me or you disagree with me, that this is like a an earth-shattering type of comment, at least for me. For me. Um, you know, it used to be at the beginning of the Masechdot, now, I guess, what, two years ago, also less, where we would say, we'd come to the new passage, we'd come to anything referring to anything, and we would say, to learn anything, you have to know everything. And there was this, you know, recognition that the compendium of the Talmud was so great and so large, and the com- the concepts were coming from such a range of places, that to put it all together, you already had to have learned everything. And we hadn't yet. But there was something, I have to say, I took great pleasure in the fact that here, in this whole passage, you're pulling from here and you're pulling from there and you're pulling from the other place and you put it all together and lo and behold, we, me, you, our co-learners, we do have the building blocks to be able to put it all together to follow everything that you've said. And I think that there's something really remarkable about that because it hasn't been that you know, vast amount of time and we don't have, I mean, I can only speak for myself here, but we don't have expertise in Shas, right, in the Talmud, and yet the building blocks are there, the vocabulary is there, and I just, it was just a really like a a wake-up kind of moment to say, let's mark this the same way that we used to mark this, like, recognition that, oh my goodness, there's so much more to know, and I'm sure we'll say that again, you know, I have no doubt, but this time, you know, the the building blocks were all there. That's one thing. Also, I will say, you know, that I, I find it particularly interesting or valuable, whatever, the recognition that the historical context makes a difference here, a difference, pardon me, because we've got the halacha, the straight halacha is very clear, kohanim, trumog, we're good to go, right, and we know what's supposed to happen here, but because of a historical situation and a decree and an impact that was made by Israel and so on, right, we end up with an upheaval to the straight you know, book learning of the halacha. And without that context, we wouldn't really know what was going on. Meaning without knowing that, yes, there's a book, the book, the straight halacha, you know, the pure halacha, let's call it. And then there's how it got adjusted by the vicissitudes of time and the impact of the need to make a decree and so on. So that's one thing. And then, of course, I think also it's interesting, you know, the location, the difference between, you know, are you on the threshing floor threshing floor or not, and how that even like attests to what else is going on, um, where we had seen elsewhere before, I think we were talking about location in terms of, you know, different towns and different communities in Bavel and Eretz Israel, but here even the difference between the threshing floor and not the threshing floor is enough to shed light on, you know, the backdrop of what's going on here in terms of these particular Kohanim. Um, so, Yordana, you'll let me know whether you, you know, see these see this passage in the same way that I do. Yeah, I totally agree with you, Anne. I think it's a lot of fun to see that after, you know, the amount of time we spend on Dafyomi, like we do know what the Daf is talking about. Like now I think we're starting to sort of, you know, particularly in Ketubah where there's so many different topics that are being talked about, it may be a new sugya for us or conceptually, conceptually the way they're talking about a topic may be new, but we know about the topic. We know the topic at least exists, and I think that's really exciting. I want to move on. Um, we've got a mission on Ahmed Bet, and the mission is pretty terse, um, and the commentary on the mission is, you know, elaborates quite a fair bit. We're not going to take that much time. We have a woman who is imprisoned by the non-Jews. Why? Meaning the the scenario is, 
that her husband is in debt. And to pay the debt, instead of putting him in prison, they put her in prison. And the point then is, or the point of this mission is then, when she comes home, she's considered to be, you know, she's allowed to go back to her husband, even if he's a Kohen. Why? Because the whole context of this imprisonment is not that she's taking captive for the, you know, for the pleasure, for the benefit, whatever, of the marauders, but because this is a monetary debt. And then once that monetary debt is paid, so to speak, so she's allowed to go home. And the presumption is that she has been unmolested because the context of it is so so official in that way. There's no concern that she's gonna be she's going to have been violated because the whole point is that they want her they want the husband to pay the debt, right? And the whole point is like they've taken her captive, so that not captive. They've imprisoned her. I want to keep the English different so that we can keep the cases straight, right? And then you know what the the it's not a very pleasing way to put it, but why would he pay for her, her to be released if they've simply been abusing her now that doesn't mean that he wouldn't have wanted to pay for her release even if it was just to stop the abuse but in this case, the presumption is that she is left alone, she can go home to her husband even if he's a Kohen. and then the the Mishnah pardon me al fashot meaning that was a case of mamo that was a case of property the reason why she has been taken is because there is a debt that is owed al fashot however if she was imprisoned because of a capital offense you know and she is then sentenced to death and then she is released and then she would be prohibited to go back to her husband even if he were not a kohen right this is like the opposite extreme because the concern is that you know it, it's the equivalent to saying well she's on death row so who cares nobody's gonna come after us let's say to the to the warden or the prison guards or whatever right and the idea being that she you know may well have even gone along with it because because those are the terms right that this is the it's a capital offense and she's not going to necessarily be treated so well not that that's ideal obviously so the gemara here says it makes a very interesting caveat. So Shmuel Bar Yitzchak said that Rav said that all of this Mishnah is really only in the context where you have Jewish authority, meaning you have the Jewish people were in, um, you know, in a ruling position over Umot Olam, over the nations of the world. And that's where you have a situation where the Gentiles, the non-Jews, were law-abiding citizens. And this then makes sense, right? But the Gemara says, however, in the case where the Umot Olam, the nations of the world, were the dominant ones, they're dominant over themselves, and therefore, you know, the understanding is, of course, if they're dominant over the non-Jews, then also they're dominant over the Jewish people. And then we say, the Gemara says, that if the woman is imprisoned even because of monetary offense, meaning uh, a debt that is owed, she is then going to be forbidden to go home to her husband because the presumption here, and it's not a PC presumption in terms of the standards, let's say, of the nations of the world, is that they would have nothing barring them from treating her with a lack of respect and violating her, right? Though... Um, they want his to come forward and pay the debt, but the assumption is, and again, I'm not, I'm not endorsing this, but the assumption is that it's an immoral society, and therefore, you know, therefore, they, 
she can't rely, the husband can't rely, they as a couple can, on the fact that morality is going to reign supreme because it's not, because these non-Jews are in charge of themselves. Um, again, I say it's not so fair. Um, okay. We then have a story of an actual, you know, an actual example of, which, again, we've seen this kind of thing happen where we've got the strict halacha and then we've got how it's applied. Matziv Rava. So Rava has an objection, um, and he brings it from another Mishnah. That Mishnah is in Eduyot. And he says, He'id Rabbi Yossi HaKohen Rabbi Zechariah Ben HaKatzav Al-Bat Yisrael She'horhega Ba'ashkelon. So, I'm sorry, I'm not seeing the word right. That doesn't make sense. Hor-hana Ba'ashkelon. So what happens? They're in Ashkelon. There's a Jewish woman. The witnesses testify that she was taken as collateral, um, which, again, you know, talk about women as property. Um, it's not so elegant. But, again, the point is that this is what has happened, that the goal then is going to be to free her, right? So the families come, and what happens? They're concerned that she has been violated there, and they kept their distance from her. But the witnesses say that she was never in seclusion and she was never violated. So then the sages say, the sages say to the family, meaning families, you're being jerks, right? That's not what the sages say. That's what I'm saying. Um, the sages say to the family, if you think that these are taken as collateral, then you have to accept that they're also credible to say that she wasn't violated. Then, then <clears throat> if you think that they're not credible to, to attest to the fact that she remained unscathed, then don't accept their testimony about her being taken as collateral to begin with. Meaning either way, if she's not collateral, she can go home, no problem. And if she's taken as collateral and she's not violated, then she can go home, no problem. Either way, these witnesses, either you accept them and she's fine, or you don't accept them and she's fine. So in either case, this woman from Ashkelon or who's there in Ashkelon gets to go home. Um, as compared to the situation where we say, you know, if it's non-Jews in charge, and then she can't go back to her husband. But Rava says, V'ha Ashkelon, this took place in Ashkelon. And his point is that this is a place where, at that time, the nations of the world were in ascendancy. They were the people in charge there. They were dominant. They took it was the city of Gentiles. And, and the whole point is that she's allowed to go home. So the next... The the daf continues, or the gemara continues rather, onto the next daf, and you know explores this further, and will counter Rava and give another version of the story, and so on. But just to make it clear that even the the gemara's take that says, um, you know, in a place of of the nations of the world being um, being the ruling class, and there's no morality there, Rava comes along and says. Well, that's not so simple because we know of this case where this woman was allowed to go home regardless of whether you accepted the witnesses. Either way, she was going to be allowed to go home. And that's a place where the where the non-Jews were ruling over everything. So so at the very least, there's if nothing else, there's an exception to that general principle of the lack of morality because sometimes really things came out just fine. And if nothing else, I think that's a little bit 
you know, a little more pleasing in terms of the lack of, uh, or, or the, the judgment against the non-Jews in terms of saying it's an inherently an immoral place, uh, you know, that's, that's a hard sell, uh, at least in our day and age. I think these are the types of passages that really describe a very different outlook about Jewish and non-Jewish relations. And I think we do have to respect that, you know, we have lived in a world where that has not always been our experience, but the Gemara's experience was very, very different. The times of the Tanayim and Amorayim is not what it's been like for us in the 20th and 21st century. Um, I'm not saying we have to be comfortable with what's on there, but it does describe a particular experience. Well, that's our DAF discussion for the day. Rank us, review us in all major podcasts. Thank you to Robin E. Michelle Farber for hosting us on the Hadron website. Let us know what you thought about this DAF on our Talking Talmud Facebook page. And until tomorrow, go and learn. Thank you.